Yeah, I was, I worked mids probably 95% of my military career. And um, as we got off, our, our shifts went from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. But by the time you got relieved off a of post, went to the armory, turned in your firearm, um, debriefed, all that crap. It was closer to seven o'clock by the time you get to your vehicle. Um, I was in the process of moving off base with um, another airman, one of my best friends to this day. And uh, he was off, so he was at the house. And I hear on the radio as I'm leaving that a plane had hit the first tower. My initial thoughts were it was probably some rich idiot in a Cessna getting his pilot's license. You know, I had no clue that it was a giant airliner. I just thought it was just some stupid guy. And, and you know, at that point, there was no crazy amount of coverage. They were still playing a bunch of music on the station. And, you know, I had probably a 15, 20-minute drive to the apartment. And we had no phone there yet. This was before cell phones were affordable for everybody. So everybody still had hard lines. Um, we weren't supposed to have our hard line for like another week. And I get there and my roommate has this makeshift antenna made out of a cut coax cable holding one, one part of the wire, one direction, one part of the wire, the other direction. So we can catch the local station. And I'm seeing, I'm like, what the hell's going on? It's, it's his, he, his girlfriend and I just sitting there watching it. And he's telling me what we all know up to this point. And at this point, the second tower hadn't been hit yet. And I'm like, holy shit, this is crazy. And, and still the gravity of the whole situation hasn't hit yet. And, you know, I just got off a midnight shift. So I grab a beer because, you know, eight o'clock in the morning is for me was eight o'clock at night. So it was nothing right. to have. Here. And as I'm walking back from the kitchen, looking at the TV, we see the second plane hit. And then that's when all of our hearts collectively sunk. I think we just sucked all the air out of that room in a, in a collective gasp. And all right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. On this episode, I talk with JD Tierney, an Air Force vet I met at a meetup called Humble Alpha Veteran Empowerment Mission 0001. Today we talk about his time in the Air Force pre-9-11 as a security police officer and how things changed post-9-11. We also talk about a major life setback that he had overcome. Now he has his own podcast and he's a small business owner. Check him out at Southpaw's Tales from the Barstool where he talks to veteran business owners and gets to know them. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. Okay, recording's up, and here I am. We're back with After the Battle Campfire, and I'm here with J.D. Tinnery. Tin Tyranny. Tyranny. I actually met him last weekend while we were doing some construction work for a veteran who runs a coffee company out in Seguin, Texas. I knew JD through our mutual friend, Joe Palacios, who's been on the show before with Maxwell Soaps. JD's big in the venture, the 
veteran entrepreneur community, and he has his own podcast, which is called. It's uh, called Southpaw's Tales from the Barstool. It's kind of an extension of my business, which is Southpaw Laser Concepts. Um, Southpaw because I'm left-handed and yeah. Oh, they let lefties in? Occasionally. Okay, just making uh, sure. I was, I was part of the end of the quota. Mm. Be careful with the quota word. That could get us in trouble on, uh, on social media. Mm. So, JD, tell us a little bit about where you come from. All right, so uh, I grew up a Navy brat. My, Navy, uh, my dad got out of the Navy uh, right before I was a teenager. Um, traveled around the first 10 years of my life. Settled in Beeville, Texas, a real tiny town. Um, so I grew up with a military influence. My older brother went in the military. I graduated high school. I went in the military. Um, was really good on the clock. Was really a dirtbag off the clock. Um, you know, typical. Yeah. Sounds about right. young man type stuff. Um, got out of the military. I jumped from job to job to job for quite a while. Um, ended up in the oil fields. Did that for 12 years, starting off at the lowest of the low job. Ended up going to several different engineering schools. Um, did engineering for a while. Finally got out as a directional driller, which pretty much means like uh, I was pointing which direction the hole would go two miles below the earth's surface. I could oh, actually. Wow. Uh, yeah, because we drill literally 90 degree angle holes where you go straight down and then a mile or two down, you turn the drill pipe and go 90 degrees. And it's over the course of, of you know, between five, 500 and a thousand foot that you make that, that angle. Oh, wow. That's and, crazy. And, and, um, several, several different, uh, uh, ventures as far as trying to start my own business, a bunch of failed ventures. Um, uh, I was laid off in the front of the oil fields in, December of 2019 and I haven't looked back um, and just been doing my business ever since then and it's been a huge learning process I'm finally getting to a point where I feel comfortable calling myself a business owner and uh, that's where we're at now nice so let's uh let's go back to uh, growing up so you grew up in Beeville which I know Beeville as the last piece of civilization before you hit uh Corpus and I'm not necessarily no offense to the people in Corpus and qualifying Corpus as civilization but it's uh on the it's off 37 on the way down to corpus right yeah it's right between uh, it's probably 15 miles from 37 to beville which is kind of funny if you go back in the history of beville beville used to be a big um railroad hub up until the early 90s they finally removed all the railroads but uh 37 was initially supposed to go through there and the politicians back in the uh 50s, 60s, 70s, when all these major uh, highways started going through, put, uh, voted against it, which actually hurt the growth of the town in the long run. So we're about 15 miles from the uh, from the actual interstate. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I guess that would completely have changed the face of Beeville if you were looking at it from you know today's perspective with all the truck traffic going down from the Eagle Ford and all of the fracking. So yeah, that would have been a probably would have made Beeville a very, very busy town. Yeah, and it used to have a, a, the Navy base there until um, when Bush Sr. was in office and they had all the uh, the base closings. Um, they closed it down. It was, I think, 91, 92 time frame, right before um, Bill Clinton took office. It was that time frame that they closed the base down. At that point, uh, the city was, was really nice. Or city, I say city. It's uh, 12,000 people, 13,000 people, something like that. But it was actually a really nice town. It was a lot of military, a lot of people up uh, keeping up their 
their lawns and their houses. And, and there was, you know, several different organizations that do, did like house of the week type stuff. And uh, once the base closed, we lost a lot of good people that cared about the town. And then it just, um, old money and bad politicians took over at that point. Makes sense. And, and um, it, it kind of plateaued for a while. Then the prisons moved in and they turned uh, what used to be a Navy base is now two different prisons out there. Plus we have another max prison there. And I think within 30 miles, there's like five prisons, uh, state and federal level. Wow. So you guys went from uh, military to prison overnight pretty much there was pretty quick little there was maybe about five years or so between the two and what was very unfortunate with the prisons moving in is number one it brought jobs which is a very fortunate thing but with that came the uh prison families the prison friends which turned into gangs and to have a gang population in such a small town uh you know, it wasn't, it didn't start off as drive-bys and things like that, but just the quality of the upkeep of houses and, and lawns, the property values, um, the school districts, a lot of that stuff went downhill at that point. And it's, it's very unfortunate. Um, we're finally starting to see an upswing where people in my generation and a little bit younger are starting to take over the, uh, um, the positions in polit- local politics, um, okay. commissioners and, and, city councilmen and stuff and it's starting to make a turnaround because they're just like me where they grew up seeing where it was at one point getting completely disenfranchised with how it's gotten and now they're in a position to be able to turn that back around again so it's it's kind of nice i'm sure it's 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 a hell of a uphill uphill battle but the first steps are being made so for you did you grow up during this transition from navy base to prison town yeah, my dad got out of the Navy just like right before. And then when he got out, he still worked there as a civilian contractor doing the exact same job, which a lot of military people do. And then ended up going to work in Kingsville once they shut down the base doing the same job. Oh, okay. Because Kingsville has a base as well. <clears throat> so what was it like growing up um, and watching your town change in front of you then? Honestly, at the time, I really didn't put two and two together. Um you know, I was, I was, as a youth and hell, even up until relatively recently in my life, I was pretty self-absorbed and the universe revolved around me and I didn't see a lot outside of that. And it wasn't until I stopped, slowed down and started reflecting that I started noticing a lot of things from my past and also how it affected me. So at the time, I it, it made no difference in my life whatsoever. I was just worried about souping up the the crappy delta 88 and doing stupid things with my friends and that was that was pretty much my high school years so during high school did you know for sure that you were going to join the military was it a foregone conclusion or did you think maybe college first then join um i would i i had every intention on, on doing college first and um i did one semester um i was enrolled but I didn't say that I actually attended. Um, I went for like test days and stuff like that. You know, typical 18 years old, first taste of freedom. And I cared more about smoking pot and, and drinking, you know, whatever we can get playing Hey Mister outside the store. And and um, ended up getting in some trouble. And that kind of fast-tracked my joining the military. Uh, the plan was always go into the military, but 
um, some stupid decisions led me to join sooner than I expected to. Yeah, I can completely relate to that. So as far as uh, in high school, were you athletic then? Oh, God, no. I was. I had to get a waiver to get into the military because I was underweight. I was one of those guys that got put on double rations because regardless how much I ate, I could not gain weight. I was 117 pounds, five foot nine um, when I joined. What? And yeah, but I was that kid that could eat a double cheeseburger, large fries, large shake, and still be hungry. Damn. And I'm like, I ate all the time. And it didn't, that didn't catch up with me until I was almost 30. And then, and then I bumped out really quick. So what year did you actually uh, head over to the recruiters? Um, it was 1998. I went to the recruiter office in January and I was in basic in April. So you were pre 9-11 then? Yes. So let's talk about um, how did you choose the Air Force? Um, With having Navy parent or having a Navy so, dad. Um, yeah, my dad was Navy. My brother was Army. He was uh, airborne. Um, my sister, my brother and sister were both much older than me. So my sister married right out of high school. She got married the summer after she graduated to a Navy pilot. And they ended up going to um, Central California where he got stationed. Oh, okay. And so every summer I would go out there and, and spend the summers with my sister and her husband. So even at a young age in, in high school and partial part of junior high, I was hanging around with a bunch of Navy officers, Navy pilots, and that was what I saw. So I ended up having the opportunity to go on a Tiger cruise. And for what for people that don't know what a Tiger cruise is, it's basically a chance for civilians to go on an aircraft carrier for seven days from Hawaii to San Diego. And in those seven days, I decided there is no way in hell I can go in the Navy. <laughs> Um, there are things called knee knockers, which is where they have, you have to step through all the doors. And I found out why they call them knee knockers. Um, on the flight deck, they have this stuff called non-skid and, um, which works really well. Yes, it works extremely well. And we were playing football up on the flight deck. Um, you know, there was no flight operations or anything going on at that point. And, uh, they have these holes where they can put chains in and, and hook planes down to, when the, when the seas are rough and I tripped in one of those holes and skid on that non-skid. So it stopped me really quick. And uh, I still have scars on part of my arm and my knee from that. And I'm like, yeah, this sucks. And not to include the birthing, uh, the rooms, if you can call them, they're like, my kids bunk beds are bigger than, than what they get. So I have a lot of friends in aviation and they, the term they use for non-skid is no skin. Mm-hmm. Because it will yeah, take it off. Sense. So um, what you're telling me is you didn't like the doors. You didn't like the safety feature. So you wouldn't go skid off the flight deck. And you were complaining about the bed. So the Air Force sounds perfect. So, yeah. Then, well, my dad was a non-bet as well. Okay. Um, and And they grew up, you know, he grew up. Navy with a bunch of Marines around and my parents pretty much told me if I joined the Marines, I would be disowned. And at the time I had no clue what it was. And the Marines today versus the Marines in Nam, it's completely different um, caliber of individual, not taking away or giving to either, or it's just a different, different time. Yeah. Um, and then I was, honestly, I was lazy and I was told there wasn't PT and I got lied to because there was PT. And I did have to run and I did have to do push-ups, and it sucked. 
<laughs> so knowing um knowing your background a little bit more i'm curious how was it that you chose the job you chose when you went into the air force um it, it's kind of funny because recruiters normally try to get you into um whatever job's going to get them a bonus or or kudos pat on the back anything like that and at the time security forces and i didn't know it or security police was having a big rush on pretty much if anybody failed any of the tech schools they were shipped over there and it had you had to have the lowest asvab score to get there and i scored a 90 something on my asvab i could have been anything my recruiter was trying to talk me into intel or um, linguist anything but security forces and I was like, no, I want to be a badass and carry a gun and, you know, just being a stupid 18 year old. And uh, they're like, all right, so here you go here. You want, you want it, you got it. And I, it sucks. Cause like three months after I joined, they started doing uh, sign on bonuses for that career field for like 15,000 or something like oh. that. 15 grand for a, for a 18 year old is a ton of oh, money. Oh yeah. Well, 15 oh, grand yeah. for 40 something year old, a ton of money. I would take, 1500 right now and be very yeah. happy i would take 15 dollars and be happy yeah so you uh you choose that how was i gotta start with the the obvious question because you said that you were so underweight how did meps treat you going in and getting your physical man i did the same thing everybody else did where i had to do the duck walk and i had to spread my cheeks for the crazy doctor and and nobody treated me any different with the exception of just having to eat more I didn't get any more time. I was just allowed to have more stuff on my plate. Yeah. But did they, um, did they ever question your medical fitness at maps or were they just like, okay, you're a skinny kid. Yeah. They just saw me as a skinny kid. I was, I was able to do all the physical, you know, whatever the, and I don't even remember what the requirements were, but whatever the requirements to graduate basic, I was able to do entering you know, the run, the pushups, the sit-ups, all that stuff. I was able to do that from the get I mean, I was, I was an active kid. It wasn't like I didn't have any, you know, I played baseball up until my freshman year when I was, uh, when I was injured and not that I was great, but, but I was always active. I was rode my bicycle everywhere. Um, oh, okay. we played football just on the street, you know, just the good old street football where you tackle each other on the curb and, and all that good fun people I still hang out with to this day. So you, so you had a few TBIs going in then is what you're saying. Yeah, most likely. So how was the um I, I always have to ask this for people because everyone's family reacts different so how was the conversation about leaving with your family um it was happy and sad at the same time you know obviously my parents were proud that i was doing something with my life especially something um positive something that was going to teach me the things i needed to learn as a person at that point in life um, obviously my mom was just really bummed that I was leaving. I was the youngest. So after me, it was empty nest. Um, my dad being prior military and, and combat military, you know, he was obviously pretty proud and, and he gave me a lot of insight going into it. Of course we were at peacetime at, at the time. So we weren't expecting nine 11 or anything like that. So I was just expecting to go in and knock out a few years and get the hell out and not see anything. So you, um, so you leave, did you guys, where did you go to MEPS? It was all in San Antonio. Okay. So you, did they bring you up here, spend a night up in San Antonio and then drive you over to boot camp? 
Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So you yeah. had probably one of the shortest drives to boot camp. Yeah, it was. Uh, I hopped on a Greyhound from Beeville, and it was an hour and a half. And I was in San Antonio, and then I took the metro bus across the town to uh, to where the uh, hotel was. They're putting us up, and then from there, they just had shuttles for the Meps, and from Meps to the uh, to the base. Yeah, you were probably in a far better position. I was on a plane back from LA, and for some reason, I went through Houston. This was right before the pandemic started. And the Houston to San Antonio flight was about three quarters Air Force push pulleys or pushies, whatever you guys call them. Rainbows. Come, come into boot camp with their little packets in their hand and looking terrified for that hour and a half flight from, uh, from Houston to here. But so you get to boot camp. Um, I don't think I've really talked to anyone about Air Force boot camp. So what you've, we've all seen the shock and awe videos from army boot camp from Marine Corps boot camp. And we know the air force kind of has a reputation of being a little soft. What is getting off the bus at air force boot camp? Like, um, getting off the bus is very similar to all the shock and all videos you've seen everywhere else. You're getting screamed at, getting screamed at by 37 different people from 37 different angles. Um, everybody telling you to do contradictory stuff just to see how you react. And, and, you know, they're all assessing you. Um, so it's very similar to every other branch at, at that particular point where it's just chaos and you don't know. I, I, I had kind of a shitty re recruiter, so I didn't know exactly what the position of attention was. I didn't know what parade rest was. I didn't know a lot of the stuff that a lot of the other guys were prepared for. Um, so yeah, the first day you do your bag drag and you go through and you get your your first pictures taken and and all the initial admin stuff and it's just screaming the entire time. Um, we get through there, um, all that initial stuff. You go to Air Force calls them dorms, their barracks. It was just an open bay barrack, just like everybody else, where it's you know 20, 30 beds going down either side, wall lockers, um, putting your stuff away there, getting screamed at, told that's the wrong way, throwing your shit all over the place starting over again and then throughout the next day and a half had people coming in from all over the place because flights came in at different times buses came in at different times um so it was just it was controlled chaos for the first couple of days and then after that if you could make a good bed if you could iron nice creases we didn't have starch but but this is back when they were still ironing and if you could polish your boots Fold your shirts in six-inch squares. Make sure your laundry marks were right. It was really pretty simple. I mean, there are guys that struggled. Um, I struggled with the hunger. Like, I got busted with a stole a bunch of uh, peanut butter and jelly packets from, from the chow hall just to try and snack on through the day because I was just – even though I was eating, I just felt like I was starving constantly. That's nuts. I, and, yeah, I, I remember people stealing stuff from the chow hall and – Maybe it was a Navy, but we all paid for, after the first time, we all paid for it. So there was a little bit of policing your own for us. Yeah. Well, I was busted by other guys. So it didn't get up to mm. the drone instructors, but our own guys took care of me how they saw fit. Oh, okay. And, Some uh, uh, blanket parties. It, that was like four or five weeks into it. And at that point, you know, I hadn't hit my, my uh, stress breakdown yet. 
And that was the point where I did, I, I remember it vividly, where I just, that was the point where I was like, fuck it. I don't care. You can go tell, you can do whatever you want. And, and it was just that brief moment of just complete and utter don't give a shitness. That, that's a new word. Yes. We're going to, we're going to copyright that. Don't give a shitness. <laughs> so that was your breaking point. How did everything ha- go after that then? Um, it was, it was pretty simple. I mean, we, we got yelled at. Um, I had a, a, I was given the nickname by the instructors, uh, as heckle because every time I got yelled at for something, I laughed just, it was just my reaction. I couldn't help it. Um, so there was, I was heckle. There was another guy there that was Jekyll because both of us were always just laughing the whole time. Um, and it was just, like I said, if, as long as you could fold iron, polish, march, and, and do your PT and stay awake during the classes. It was, it was easy. You, you know, you have an alarm clock, you know, with people screaming. Oh, okay. I was okay. like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Your alarm clock is, is being screamed at or crap being thrown across the room. Lights getting thrown on real quickly. But besides, I mean, it was pretty simple. I know some people struggle, but. I, I think wasn't. that's par for the course. So I do have to ask, and I know you will have gone through many of these, but so during boot camp at some point in time, they take you into a little room and they put this mask on your face. Very, very dissimilar to the mask that we currently are wearing around the country. <laughs> and they let some gas out. How was your first time in the gas chamber? Um, it wasn't. It sucked, but I tell you what, I've been OC'd and tased and all that stuff since just for other training. And I would rather do the CS than OC any day of the week. Yeah. Um, the CS gas, it sucks. You're snotty, your eyes burn, but as long as you do what you, what you're told and you wave your arms like a duck and, and you know, you, you give it 10, 15 minutes, it's done and it's over with it. And so it sucked. I think Probably at the time, I thought it sucked worse than it did. But at this point, I was like, yeah, whatever. It is I, I, I always ask because it's kind of one of those things that regardless of what branch you're in, you had to go through. The gas I don't think Air Force does it anymore, though. <clears throat> what I've heard is they don't even I, do that. Damn, Air Force, you ruin everything. Man, they don't. Oh, man, they took the irons away. Well, they took the irons away from the kids when I was still permanent party at Lackland because too many kids were burning themselves. Wait, with the irons. you mean like iron iron yeah like to iron your clothes to to put nice sh- sharp creases in your uniforms um yeah yeah but they i was also being security themselves. forces security police and being stationed there it was kind of a unique situation because there was at least once or twice a week where i would get dispatched to go to uh, one of the basic training squadrons for a suicidal attempt suicidal gesture most of the times, believe it or not, it was kids trying to OD on vitamin C pills that they picked up at the PX. You know, those little orange flavored chewable tablets. I'm like, come on, kid. You're just going to shit yourself for two days and it's done and it's over with. But then it goes on the record as far as suicide, uh, suicidal attempts, suicidal gesture. Most of them are chaptered out. That, really? that mental health thing is obviously going to follow them. Yeah. Because it's documented at that, t- at that point. Um, but I'm like, come on, man. It's, you can't fold shirts. Really? Uh, so at the end of boot camp, I'm assuming your parents came up, uh, that you did the graduation thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
how how was that seeing them in uniform um honestly i think i was just as, as emotional as they were you know it was the first thing i've ever completed outside of high school um it was my uh my mom my dad um who else was there one of my adopted sisters was there and then the i don't know how the other branches do it but the day of graduation we're allowed to walk around base and and um you know go to the big px and and hang around and go to burger king all that good stuff the following day we're, we're given uh city liberty gotta stay in uniform um so we went to uh six flags there in san antonio and of course you see all the other basic trainees with their families there at six flags in san antonio and um it was it was yeah, it was it was pretty nice. I mean, it, it's it, I mean that was over twenty years ago. So trying to think of how I yeah. actually felt at that point is pretty difficult. That was June of ninety eight when I graduated, I believe June, July, somewhere around there. So I can tell you, living here in in the part of San Antonio I live in, I'm walking distance to the actual you know the touristy river walk, mm. and until you mentioned it, I just realized I haven't seen any of the basic trainees go for their weekend liberty since the pandemic started every weekend prior to the pandemic i would see between 20 and 30 of them either walking around my complex which has uh like a gelato shop that people go to or when i go on walks downtown see them everywhere but since the pandemic started they're not getting that uh post boot camp liberty so it's kind of well i was stationed in san antonio for five years i live in corpus we're only two miles or two hours away so we still go my wife and i will go up there for vacations or you know take the kids up there we'll go do the the kids museum um not to give anybody a, a special shout out or anything but there's this guy that does a really cool walking haunted tour downtown he meets at the uh the that what is that that big statue right across from the alamo oh about moving yeah it has a name and i can't think of the, the name say obelisk but it's not the obelisk but it's yeah, kind of yeah. like that it's a real tall thing yeah it's a big like white marbly thing with carvings in it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but it's really cool it's like a two-hour walking ghost tour um we actually got some cool pictures doing that tour one night nice uh we stayed at the at the uh emily rose which is a haunted hotel like we did a whole haunted night there or, or weekend right on that's pretty cool so um yeah it's just it, like you were bringing up though it's weird not seeing them so i did you go on uh did you go back and work with your recruiter after you got out or did you just go straight to the school? I went straight to the schoolhouse and then did the did my tech school and then from there straight to permanent party. So I just walked from one side of the base from basic to the other side for the tech school to the other side of base for permanent party. So you said that uh you were pretty sure of yourself. After you got out, did you uh after you got out of boot camp and went over to tech school, did you kind of look back at the uh people in boot camp as you know, you're not quite an airman yet. Oh yeah, of course, man. It's just, and then, you know, even though I was, I went in as an E1, no stripes on my shoulders, no nothing. And uh, even when I went to permanent party for the first like month and a half or so, I had zero stripes. I still looked at them like, Haha, I'm better than you guys. I'm, <laughs> I can go off base whenever I want to. Were you like, call me airman? <laughs> no, no, it was. I really tried to stay away from them for the most part. I feel yeah. There's, so what is the security forces school like for you guys? 
Um, initially it's a lot of classroom, um, because we worked hand in hand with the SAPD and Bear County, um, a lot of times just because Wilford Hall, the, the uh, hospital that was there is one of the major trauma centers for San Antonio. So there was a lot of gang related stuff that came in. We had to know, uh, Texas state law get T close certified, um, in a lot of cases. So we had to do that. We had to do all the military UCMJ law as well. Um, so there's a ton of classroom and then, um, some training, you know, obviously with everybody got trained with the, uh, nine mil and M16 brag smokes laws, things like that. And then depending on which subspecialty you had, which they don't have these anymore, but it used to be a security long security short and law enforcement. I, I went through as law enforcement. So I was trained at that time on the, uh, saw as well, the, the 249. And then there were other ones that went in and they would get trained with the, uh, either the uh, M60, 50 cal, so on and so forth. Uh, subsequently, when I went permanent party, I got trained up on a lot of that stuff. So um, a lot of hand-to-hand -hand as far as domestic disputes, um, fights on base, you know, learning to deal with a lot of that stuff. So it was, it was pretty much like a, a, a law enforcement academy for the most part. So how long was that, that course? Uh, I couldn't even tell you. Two or three months. Okay. So... I, I, were you guys able to translate your skills out to, could you go be a reserve officer? Or? Oh, there's tons of, there's, it's pretty common for, for security forces to become law enforcement on the outside. Um, I kind of went a different route. I did uh, private investigations specializing in insurance fraud and uh, skip tracing for a while. Oh, okay. So did then, you, will you talk about the difference between, cause I don't think a lot of people understand it. The difference between the military, uh, the UCMJ and just normal civilian law. So civilian law, you have your, your codes, all your state penal codes, which just identify what laws, what, what the punitive actions are for breaking those laws, whether it be fines, um, local jail, state jail, federal jail, so on and so forth. UCMJ is just basically a military version of that. It's the laws of the land for the, for the military. Um, a lot of them can translate directly from civilian to to military as far as DWIs, assaults, things like that. But there's other things that the military has as far as uh, destruction of government property. If you get a sunburn so bad that you can't show up to duty, you can actually be punished for that. Um, punitively, you can get extra duty, you can lose stripes, you can lose uh, partial pay. There's simple things like that. There, You have a Article 134, which is a catch-all. So basically, if your commander doesn't like something you did and it's not in the code, they can just say like, well, we're charging you with this, which is just dot, 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 um, for, for lack of better terms. So once you graduated um, security forces school, did you stay in Lackland from there or yeah. did you go somewhere else? I, I was permanent party. I was stationed there. Unless I was overseas, I was at Lackland. Okay. So during your time there, did you guys have to get involved with um, NJP's non-judicial punishment where it's held at the command level? Or were you guys only for stuff that would either go to court martial or involved in the civilian authorities? Generally, we wouldn't be part of NJPs outside of our statements. Um, writing a good witness statement and, and re report and record a statement for the blotters and, and um, for permanent record was just pounded into our head. So outside of, of 
those written statements. Generally, we weren't called in unless it was just a high profile case. Um, I was stationed there when there was a mail bomb that went to a, a was sent to a, an instructor on the Medina Annex side, and uh, he was injured fairly severely from it. Oh, so it was a live bomb. Yes, it was a live bomb. It, it he was. I don't want to go too in depth with of his injuries. Right. He did survive, but uh, he was medically retired after that. It, it this was pre nine eleven, um, so obviously stuff like that had to get. You know, there was a lot more involved in that. There was a couple DWIs with uh, accident and and injury that obviously we had to go farther. But generally, outside of just our statements, it would it would just stay there. Okay. So did you guys have to get involved with the, the civilian courts? If there was like domestic violence that was prosecuted by Bear County or SAPD? Yeah, actually, there was one point where uh, I was called to go and escort Bear County um, Sheriff's Department and a couple of city to go serve a, a, a warrant to a civilian dependent. And uh, this dude was like, six foot 11 inches tall and, and 3000 pounds of just one gigantic muscle. And my job, since they were serving the warrant, my job was just to escort them there, hang back, make sure nothing crazy happens. And then just escort them back off base. Um, he became combative. Uh, I ended up jumping in and I actually uh, had my knee blown out because he kicked me square in my kneecap and, and bent my leg backwards. Um, this guy was fighting like five of us simultaneously it was ridiculous so so in that case yeah i actually had to go to, to court off base to to testify about his behaviors damn uh, there was also i wasn't there but there was a time where some gangbangers ran the gate to go drop off their or kick the dude out of the car right at the er entrance who took a shotgun blast to the, to the gut um they were chased off um off base by our police by the security forces and um, those guys had to testify in the civilian court. So. so as law enforcement, are you, you guys are not or are manning the gates? At the time we were manning the gates. It was, it was kind of the entry level. Okay. You just graduated your tech school. Here's the first responsibility you will ever have. And then you kind of worked up from there. And depending on, on how quickly you, you did all your assigned um, testing and qualifications you could move up to patrol and and okay so the, leadership positions but everybody but now they have a lot of a department of defense law enforcement where it's a separate entity yeah i see those guys a lot over at fort sam um i was just curious if because uh, you were saying when you came in there was long short and then law enforcement if they were different like if one did gate guard well you guys yeah patrol. it was it was I got in right at the transition. I think I was the last class to go through where it was actually fully separated. And then it was security police. And then it went to security forces where they just combined all of it. Everybody learned everything. And then your law enforcement is obviously more policing geared. Your security would be the ones that are walking the fence line, uh, standing underneath planes, um, working the nuclear silos up in the uh, northern tier, like Minot, North Dakota, Effie Warren, Wyoming, places like oh, okay. that. Um, a lot of your security pe uh, people would also go to like Korea, um, Germany, a lot of our overseas bases initially. Oh, okay. So um, how long did you do on the gates? <sighs> I had, let's see. Uh, 
often on like I was initially on the gates just purely gates for like the first six months until I got some uh um some 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 more people transferred in finally and I got to move up a little bit um and then just slightly more uh more responsibility as far as getting some of the security posts on the Medina annex which is where there's a lot of a intelligence areas um there's a big munitions bunker out there securing that and then moving up uh moved up to desk sergeant which is basically like a, a dispatcher oh, okay and so do you have any crazy stories from uh working the gates late at night oh my goodness well being a single guy was awesome working nights um because you have all the uh all the ladies coming in after the club and getting phone numbers that was always good um there was a oh my goodness there was a uh brawl that broke out at the uh enlisted club on base and i was working the gate that was almost directly in front of it and all these people were trying to leave to not get arrested from the brawl and uh i was i secured the outbound of of my gate you know just basically pulled the gate closed physically and so this guy is trying to leave through the inbound lanes swerve jump the uh the curb almost hitting me and just out of pure reaction, no thought whatsoever. I grabbed the fire extinguisher that was next to me and slung it and slammed it in the side of this car. <sighs> and, uh, damn, there were some pretty choice words from leadership about doing that. Um, instead of using my, my sidearm, I used a, a fire extinguisher, but it was just pure in instinct at that point. You know, I don't want to shoot a car, but I'll hit him with a safety device. Um, my goodness, there's a, quite a few man I'm, i feel like i'm on the spot trying to think of them off the top of my head now <laughs> well there's, there's lots of stupid things that we saw i i know from being on marine base as long as i was that uh you'll get the random dependent who forgets mm -hmm. that they are just married to an officer oh yeah and you need to you need to salute me do you see that blue sticker yeah, yeah. my husband worked hard for his rank and not only that, but people just like, you need to let me in because I'm, you know, officer rank such and such. I'm like, I don't care until you show me your ID. You're not coming on. I don't care what you tell me. Well, I'm calling your commander. Well, call him. I don't care. And then our thing was, is our security badge or our, our security forces badge is topped with, with uh, an eagle that looks almost identical to a full bird colonel's eagle. And, uh, so I'd co it was just common thing for us to cover up the bottom of our badge and, and say, look, don't confuse your rank with our authority. And then it would have the colonel that we were showing. It was just kind of a ego play on our part. For, That's okay. Honest. E ego plays are somewhat good. Now I remember uh, again, some of the lifetime guys that have lived here in San Antonio um, talk about pre nine 11, like Fort Sam was an open base. I'm assuming Lackland wasn't for obvious reasons, but did you ever have to deal with Fort Sam at all? No, I, I never went to Fort Sam. I don't think I've, I think I've been on, on their grounds like once, maybe twice in my entire life. Cause that's back when everything was completely separate. That was an army base. Yeah. Yeah. Every, the, all the bases were still completely independent of each other. Yeah. So moving on. So there's that day that came up that we keep, uh, topping around i think it was uh the 11th of september 2001 that is 
I have TBI and that's still one of my sharpest memories ever was that day. If I remember right, it was a Tuesday. Um, were you on duty that day? Yeah, I was, I worked mids probably 95% of my military career. And, um, as we got off our, our shifts went from 6 PM to 6 AM. But by the time you got relieved off a of post, went to the armory, turned in your firearm, um, debriefed all that crap. It was closer to seven o'clock by the time you get to your vehicle. Um, I was in the process of moving off base with um, another airman, one of my best friends to this day. And uh, he was off. So he was at the house and I hear on the radio as I'm leaving that a plane had hit the first tower. My initial thoughts were it was probably some rich idiot in a Cessna getting his pilot's license. You know, I had no clue that it was a giant airliner. I just thought it was just some stupid guy. And, and, you know, at that point there was no crazy amount of coverage. They were still playing a bunch of music on the station. And, you know, I had probably a 15, 20 minute drive to the apartment and we had no phone there yet. This is before cell phones were affordable for everybody. So everybody still had hard lines. Um, we weren't supposed to have our hard line for like another week. And I get there and my roommate has this makeshift antenna made out of a cut coax cable holding one one part of the wire one direction one part of the wire the other direction so we can catch the local station and i'm seeing i'm like what the hell's going on it's it's his he his girlfriend and i just sitting there watching it and he's telling me what we all know up to this point and at this point the second tower hadn't been hit yet and i'm like holy shit this is crazy and and still the gravity of the whole situation hasn't hit yet and you know, I just got off a midnight shift. So I grab a beer because, you know, eight o'clock in the morning is for me was eight o'clock at night. So it was nothing right. to have a beer. And as I'm walking back from the kitchen, looking at the TV, we see the second plane hit. And then that's when all of our hearts collectively sunk. I think we just sucked all the air out of that room in a, in a collective gasp and, I don't think a single word was said for like the next hour as we all took turns holding this antenna up. Um, and so I, I finally ended up going to bed after watching the towers fall and I had to work that night and uh, I show up finally, you know, the, the normal time I always would. And they already have cement Jersey barriers outside the gates and they have Humvees um, with uh, M60s pointing on the, inbound lanes like it was completely different than what it was just 10 hours earlier and i'm getting screamed at at the gate where have you been we've been trying they had a recall and we've been trying to get a hold of you and oh my god i don't know what the fuck's going on and where we guys show up to the armory and and instead of getting my typical daily load out of of either an m16 or nine mil it was my nine mil my m16 and m60 ammo for all of it body armor and this is the first time outside of of um well i went to, to kosovo in, in 99 when all that stuff was going down so outside of that this is the first time i've ever had to have any kind of body armor outside of just the typical bulletproof vest that you'd wear under your shirt like like normal law enforcement would and from there it was just the military was a completely different critter from that day on when did you get out i got out in 03 Okay. So have you been around military like bases and stuff like that since? Oh yeah. Yeah. Has it, 
has it felt like it's gone back to pre 9-11 in any way to you no no it was it was so much more relaxed i mean to put it in perspective we we, we had the elite gate guard at one point where you had to wear a white ascot full dress blues um we had our 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 trousers were were bloused so they were tucked up under our boots uh white laces white gloves our beret and and see even our our patrolmen uh, um in the police cars were wearing blues as well <clears throat> and there's no way you'll see that these days everybody's gonna be wearing battle dress whatever the current fashion is for the battle dress uniforms um the security at the gates is is completely different it used to be just a lot more open it would just be a either a push button little gate that would open or close on a track or you actually physically pull the gate closed now now most of the gates have a pneumatic or, or hydraulic bullards that come out of the ground and pop up and just just the security alone is is completely different yeah yeah, definitely. I, I can tell you, I watched him put some of those things in at Fort Sam as I was going through my time over there. And yeah, and that was in 2008, 2009, when they really started to stick those things in. So going back, um, I want to we'll go back over to Kosovo. I apologize for completely skipping over that. But in terms of Lackland, how... So Lackland, for people who don't know, has two sides. Uh, Southwest military cuts right between the base and there's fencing on both sides. One side is what I'd call the general population base. Uh, the exchange is there, the commissary, housing. Then the other side is the training side. How much time did you, at post 9-11, did you spend training side versus, like I'll call it commissary side, doing your your posts? Um. It was split. Well, I mean, they rotated us pretty, pretty regularly as far as what areas you worked. Sometimes it would be the, the, as you call it, the general, general, oh my goodness. We're all the normal people are. Yeah. Since words aren't working for me today. <laughs> uh, other days it would be working the training side, which I actually liked those because uh, I was a heavy smoker at the time and I dipped and um, you get, you get there when the basic trainees are rolling in and they're doing the bag drags. I don't think there was a year and a half I paid for a pack of smokes because I would just confiscate theirs. Um, then there's other times where you'd work the, the Medina annex, which is across um, 410. Oh, that's right. I, I keep forgetting that that's part of Lackland. And then as it, I was there when um, Lackland and Kelly merged into one base. So then we started taking over the flight lines and uh, jets and plane security and, and things like that. So it was, they, they tried to rotate people out for the most part. Um, obviously the towards people's strengths and, and if you screwed up, you went back to the gates and, you know, it was just kind of a hodgepodge. So it was, it was, it was pretty much mixed matched. So did you, could you tell a difference in the, maybe not the quality, but the tra training intensity post nine 11 for the recruits when you were on that side? Um, or did it really change? I don't think the training quality really changed. I think the intensity as far as, there was less, um, less joking around and less less downtime um, to to kind of decompress, and I think that was for both permanent party and and the trainees, especially you know that first year afterward. I mean everything was just 
intense and and under a microscope. So did did you so you had gone to Kosovo? Let's jump back on that real quick, just because I think that'll add some perspective into nine eleven. Did you go in there during the hostilities, or were you guys there as peacekeeping forces after everything that happened in Kosovo happened? We were there. I was actually. It was a. Uh, we were there during all of that. Um, our actual base was in Albania, but it wasn't far from the border. Um, we kind of took over an old abandoned airfield. It was all uh, just tent city, no hardened buildings there, with the exception of maybe one or two, which were the command centers. Um, even the the BX, the child facility, shower facilities were all tents. Um, Hesco barriers all the way around, which are basically just fiberglass filled with rocks for the people that don't know what Hesco barrier yeah. is. Um, and But we did a lot of convoy security, a lot of uh, patrolling and recon, um, both on the Albania side and the Kosovo side going back and forth. We, we made it all the way to the sea a bunch of times, um, bringing in supplies, humanitarian supplies, um, making sure that the tent cities where the refugees were at were, were staying secured and, and, you know, making sure that they weren't being attacked. Um, we were there with, uh, there was Brits, Aussies, uh, the Swedes, um, Spanish, Italian. I mean, there was it was it was a multinational effort. So now, in a combat zone as um, security forces, are you guys combatants or are you still doing law enforcement type stuff? Oh no, I was I was a turret gunner. My my job most days was in in the turret with the sixty. My daily loadout, I had my M sixty, M sixteen, uh, my nine mil countless amounts of rounds for each um two frag grenades two smoke grenades two law rockets and like we talked about earlier i weighed at this i was maybe maybe a buck 25 buck 30 at this point and having to carry all that crap from the armory to the humvee Jeez. really sucked yeah you think it was it was more than my body weight and it was i wish there was a video of of me trying to carry all that because i'm sure it'd be pretty damn funny to watch now do you guys retain any of your law enforcement um, I, I'm not even quite sure what the word is. Powers, I guess, licensures or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, when you're um, when you're over in a combat zone, or are you just solely doing convoy security at that point in time? Um, we do to an extent, as far as just on the facility. You know, we'll maintain if there's anybody that's doing anything they're not supposed to, we take care of that. But it's not, um. It's not like you see in the movies where you have a guy with a old World War II helmet with MP spray painted on it and then MP on the sleeve. And that's all they do is go and arrest people for getting drunk. You know, it's not like that. Oh, okay. But if it was needed, we do feel that. Uh, but fortunately, I think everybody that was there was very mission oriented and we didn't have to deal with a lot of stupidity. And, um, you know, I, I, I screwed up one time and I ended up just getting some wall to wall counseling. I was there. I fell asleep on the turret. Just, it was one of those sleeps where you don't even know you're asleep until somebody wakes you up. And, um, one of the, one of the guys in my leadership wanted to fry me for it. And my direct supervisor, who was somebody I thought really hated me up to that point. Uh, he took me into the, the tent behind ours, which was empty. And he said, Hey, just grab your ruck and, and come on. 
And when I grab my ruck, I'm like, oh shit. So I'm throwing pillow in there, my sleeping bag. He's like, no, you're going to fill it with what you're supposed to fill it with. I'm like, oh shit. So we go back there and I'm wearing my ruck, having to do pull-ups on the uh, support members of this tent while he just continues to just blast me in the gut with punches, left, right, left, right. And every time I fell, I'd jump back up, um, get down, do push-ups until I'm completely smoked and then having to run. And then once it was done and over with, it's like, all right, as far as I'm concerned, it never happened. Don't screw up again. Damn. So I think that was how a lot of things were handled and everybody, every different career field or, or job kind of handled their own for the most part within their own command. So doing the, the humanitarian runs, how was that on you? That was exhausting, uh, both mentally and physically. Cause some of them, you know, it, one may be three or four hours and you're done. The next one will be 36 hours. And you're in the turret the whole time, unless we're stopping to, to take piss breaks or, or something. You're eating in, in the turret. You take power naps whenever you can, every now and again. Um, but then it, it, out in the middle of nowhere, it was pretty easy. But anytime we're going through any kind of urban areas, um, you know, and it was, it was really tight roads in between buildings, two, three, four story cinder block buildings, no glass on the windows. You know, just being, being, um, having to be hyper vigilant is, is very exhausting. And, and I don't want to say that I'm a badass and I've done stuff that, that other guys haven't. Cause what I did is, is by comparison, nothing, um, compared to a lot of the OEF, OIF guys. And I don't want to take any, anything away from them, but anybody in that position can understand that it's just mentally exhausting having to be alert all of the time and, you know, especially the first time I, I saw a nine-year-old with an AK pointing it, you know, that is fraud to this day that that particular event is one of the most stressful events I've ever encountered in my entire life is, is, you know, go, no go for a nine-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see how that can affect you. Uh, so was that, um, were you in a situation of legitimate threat at that point in time? Not necessarily with the nine-year-old, but on that particular, what was the threat level like over there? I guess would be the, the threat level was, was there. Um, it was nothing like what the guys and gals in Iraq, Afghanistan saw. Um, it was more, there was no organized enemy. It was just random stupid shits with guns just taking random shots at us and that was it it wasn't there was no battles or or large skirmishes or anything it was just random pop shots from idiots and you know all of our um lpops were shot at almost every night just from random you know two or three rounds at each one and that was it and you know it so the threat was there, but it wasn't by comparison as large as what most of combat, but like, I don't, I don't consider myself a combat vet, even though I was in that situation just because of the comparison, I don't want to take away from what other people did. That's way, way, way beyond what I've ever even dreamed of doing. Right. So now, um, with the, with the humanitarian stuff, were you ever part of the distribution or do you guys just drive convoys there and then? They did their thing. We, we never distributed anything. We uh, stood around 
supplies with M16s and just kind of made sure nobody was stealing them because it, there was no malicious attacks against a lot of the supplies, but it was just a lot of these refugees seeing, you know, cases and cases and pallets and pallets and pallets of MREs and water and things like that. There, there would be times where they would rush and try to get that stuff and not wait in line and, and try and do it organized. But it's just a, a it, it wasn't malicious. It was just a, a, a cultural difference between what we were trying to do and, you know, it, a lot of these people, the the, the average middle in class, uh, middle class income over there in that region is like fifty dollars American, or at the time it was like fifty dollars American a year. Oh wow! So, I mean, it was nothing. Most of the people, unless they were the super super rich, lived in homemade huts, um, cinder block houses with no doors, no windows, with the exception of like a blanket tacked up. Um, just extremely poor countries. So for them to see these food and water resources just out there stacked up, you know, they, they come from a mentality where they have to take what is theirs or else they're not going to have it. So now jumping back to 9-11, did, with your time over in Kosovo, did that play into a mindset shift for you? Did you, compared to some of the guys who had never deployed at all, were you able to see threats or innu innuendos of threats differently? I honestly don't know if if that is the case. Um, I'm sure it was to some degree, but on a on more of a uh, subconscious level, you know, I didn't I didn't equate the two. You know, causation correlation. Uh, it was just kind of reaction to what was going on and. Another thing that's unique to Lackland that a lot of people don't know about is we have the uh, Defense Language Institute or DLI. And what that is, it's basically basic training for foreigners. So right. a lot of a lot of Middle Eastern countries, um, a lot of uh, East Asian countries send their people to Lackland to learn how to do uh, military tactics, speak English, uh, you know, war planning, you know, all that we're teaching. And there's actually some of the people that were leaders in ISIS, Al Qaeda, things like that, that graduated from the Defense Language Institute. Uh, I think I'm, I might be wrong on this, but I think it was one of Saddam's kids who graduated from the DLI Institute there. So seeing these people that, that, and, and I don't want to come off as racist, but it's who we were actively in war with at the time and seeing them come through the gate, there was obviously um, more of a on guard type feeling right. with, with, with those foreigners. Cause we don't know who's there as a spy. We don't know who's there as a friend, you know, and, and, and a lot of them have diplomatic immunity, which they used to the fullest extent that they possibly could coming in the gates, just extremely drunk coming in the gates with hookers coming. I mean, just, the stories I could tell about some of those guys is hilarious. Or you tell them to stop and no, I'm a prince. I don't have to stop. And, and there were several times where I had to draw my pistol just to make them stop. So I could check IDs, make sure that they are supposed to be coming on that base. Um, so, you know, not to be culturally insensitive, but because of who we were at war with and, and how fresh that wound was, there was definitely, um, um, I'm trying to figure out the best way to word, but there was definitely uh, uh, feelings, certain feelings towards certain ethnicities, ethnicities 
at that time that were allowed to be on the base. Now, did you, do you think you saw that with the um, air force service members that were of that particular religion or ethnic or ethnicity? Yeah, there so, were, I mean, so there Americans... were definitely some, there were, there were some that, that had to deal with that. And, but I think it was on a very micro level. Um, it would be absolutely absurd for me to say, no, we were all yeah. professionals and we all were perfect. And, but you know, I'm not going to say that I was involved in it ever, but I, I'm sure that it did happen. So um, I never saw it personally. Yeah. Cause I, I know that we all kind of shit talk um, amongst ourselves all the time. And sometimes we say some really insensitive stuff, but it's never meant to be harmful. But if someone from the outside saw it, they'd think we were probably some of the worst people in the world. Oh yeah. But, it's like, I was, I was explaining it to my wife and a couple of the people that would go to the Muay Thai gym uh, just yesterday. You know, it's like guys, when guys get together, they're going to find that one thing about you physically that makes you uncomfortable about yourself. And they're just going to pick at it and pick at it and pick at it. Like me, it's my chicken legs. And, and all the guys around me always make fun of me about my chicken legs. And it's to the outsider. It sounds like you're just being completely just absolutely mean and and but it's actually with love but on the flip side of that coin if your buddy's getting divorced you're gonna be there for him and you're gonna take him out and get drunk and be like you're 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 all right you know it's yeah we, we take care of our own in our own way yeah we may abuse each other a little bit but we try our best to take care of each other so september 11th turns into 20 or 20 yeah not 2020 it turns into 2002 and the war starts off in december did you have an opportunity to go to afghanistan or was that yeah, just not even in your guys the closest i got to that was um saudi arabia um i was never any closer to ief oef than that um and even the base i was at there I don't even think it considers it's considered a deployment. We had an Olympic sized swimming pool where I was at. So, uh, so how was the culture shock going to Saudi Arabia? Um, it was, it was really crazy. Any of our females that went off base had to wear the burqas on, um, we were expected to follow local customs. Um, as far as we were there during Ramadan. So uh, we weren't allowed to eat, drink, smoke, dip, in, in the view of the locals. So if we needed to hydrate or get a meal or something like that, we had to make sure we did it behind closed doors. Um, wow. It was, it was pretty crazy. Um, some of them absolutely loved us. Others absolutely hated us. Um, all of our gates there had bulletproof glass and they were all spiderwebbed from taking pop shots. Um, but there was, there was a couple of, cause some of our gates would be, manned by the Saudis and by us and there was some of them where we end up trading berets and and uh they have this really good tea and it you only get it in like a two ounce glass or mug or whatever you want to call it but it's like super sweet the way they I don't know what it is but it's really good tea but you know that you became a friend with them when they started sharing their tea with you um, oh nice but what, what else was crazy was they had the loudspeakers all over town gigantic six foot wide speakers that eight, 10, 12 times a day would do the prayer over the loudspeakers and pretty much everything ceases at that point until the prayers are over. 
Um, unless you're doing something that is absolutely mission critical, you stopped just because we were, we were there with allies. So we were trying to, to respect their customs. So did you guys, um, how was, how were you guys personally though? Was there a heightened sense of awareness being in Saudi Arabia or? Of course there was, it was, uh, I think to some degree they built it up in our brains bigger than what it was initially to keep us, you know, hyper alert all the time. Um, I said there wasn't like outside of some pop shots, it wasn't crazy. Um, You know, we found bomb components on vehicles coming in, but never full bombs that I was aware of. Um, Lots of, of, bomb threats like almost daily bomb threats where we're having to cordon off certain areas of the base or right outside the base um luckily you know we didn't take any casualties at all while we were there um yeah, it was it, it really wasn't bad at all oh, okay for for what it was i mean it was but we were far enough away we were more of just like a um support as far as uh Things would fly into PSAB. We would go uh, take it from PSAB to ESCON and then from ESCON it'd be go wherever it needed to go from there. So what year was that then? 01. Okay. I was there in 01. So when you, um, 02 comes around, we're, like I said earlier, we're fighting in Afghanistan. You're still doing the security stuff. You said you got out in 2003. What, when did you get out in 2003? I got out in March of 2003 and um, not my most proud moment. Uh, a lot of t- for years I hid this, but now I'm, I'm fairly open about it. Um, I was actually politely asked by the air force to leave for some uh, conduct off duty. Uh, basically I was close to getting, I was close to my ETS of, of getting out of my contract. Um, it threw a party at my apartment off base. It's going to be the last time I saw a lot of these people did some stupid shit and uh ended up being a sting and uh ended up being court-martialed got a general under honorable uh, because of my record up to that point um and then did uh five months in the brig and was and then got out after that not my proudest moment you know but um i use that as as a teaching moment for for people that i mentor now or for people that are just completely uh, just just have no self-esteem or self-worth whatsoever because of decisions they've made in the past. I'm like, look where I'm at now. Yeah. You know, I was, I was a complete screw up when I was younger. You know, I made lots of stupid decisions, but here I am now, um, business owner, so semi-successful business owner, family man. You've got three kids, um, a marriage that's over 16 years now. Nice. You know, so, so I've got a lot of stuff going for me that by definition i shouldn't have because of things i did in the past but you can't let the past define who you are tomorrow and and i think that using that as a teachable moment is, is very important so like i said not my proudest moment um it was definitely a cross that i bore mentally and emotionally a lot longer than i should have uh, but i think within the last four or five years i've become a lot more open about it 
So let me ask you this. Um, as a law enforcement officer, and currently in the news, there's a law enforcement officer who's going away for a very long time. Is there... How am I trying to put this? Being on one side of law, then having to go on the other side. Was there a whole bunch of animosity animosity from people you worked with? Do oh, you absolutely. feel like like law like the guys who were law enforcement got a harder shake at their court martial because they were being held to a higher standard? Or oh, one hundred percent, yes. Um, they threw the book at me. Um, I was very fortunate. My parents, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but they sold stuff off to pay for a civilian lawyer, which I'm glad they did. Cause that's what really helped me out. Um, versus cause there was 13 people in my case, uh, including myself. And of the 13, I was the only one that got general under honorable. Um, but yeah, the, our commander specifically wanted the book thrown at us, wanted the harshest punishment possible, um, by the UCMJ and not that all, you know, there was a couple of the guys involved that were pieces of shit, but the overwhelming majority were just young kids making a stupid decision with alcohol. And uh, I think it's very unfortunate that, and not just for military, but anybody or law enforcement, any, just anybody being that young and making a, a simple mistake. It's, it's very difficult pill to swallow that, it, that it's something's going to follow you for the rest of your life. But being law enforcement, particularly, and then being punished um, even though it was something that was off duty, you, you definitely hit with a different standard. Yeah. I kind of figured that. Um, so again, talking in a weird mirror way, a uh, certain officer who's going to jail for a very long time, it looks like in the civilian world, if you're a cop, you're kind of pegged, or at least that's what the movies make you make. It seems like that you're going to have a rough time. In the brig, does anyone even know you? I mean, do they know that you were that your MOS was security forces? Oh yeah, the 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 people, the brig was in, on Lackland, and everybody that was guards there were security forces. They all knew me, and that made my time there very uh, not fun. Because even in there, I was held as to a different standard to the other confinement, you know, the, the other people in confinement from other branches and uh, career fields. Well, I, I, where I was going with that was, did the other, I don't know, do you call them inmates in the military? The other people doing their time in the brig, did they know? Yeah, yeah, they knew because the, the guards let them know. Oh, okay. It was, it was no secret whatsoever. They knew me before I even got there. There was, they all knew me. Oh, wow. And not just me, but everybody else that was involved in that case as well. We were, we were all known before we showed up. Oh, wow. And so that must've made time um, very interesting to say the least. Yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the break was basically like basic training all over again. You get up early, you make your beds. You eat breakfast, you do PT, you go back, you do chores all day long, you sweep, you mop, you clean, you scrub, you dust, and then you eat dinner and you go to bed. And that it was that every day. Okay. And of course, you know, of course, you know, when, when you're 
in confined areas. It was open bay um, sleeping facilities, just like a, a basic training dorm with the same foot lockers and the same beds and bunks. And, um, you know, tensions would, would get raised, you know, and, and there'd, there'd be some physical stuff, but it wasn't like Oz or, or any kind of crazy jail. So did your brig hold, um, like violent offenders? We had violent offenders, drug users, um, pedophiles, um, like it was everything across the board. If it was anything that could be punishable up to one year, um, by the military standards, you can go there. Oh, okay. Okay. And then anything over one year, I think they went to Leavenworth or something similar to. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So now, um, that time's over that five months that you did. Are you still in the air force when you get out as far as, um, do you still have months to go or was your transition out immediate? Um, I was, I was, uh, administratively discharged, um, two weeks afterwards, two weeks after I got out. Um, basically cause they couldn't, they didn't, I didn't get a discharge in my court martial. I was go Um, so technically by the time, um, I finished my sentence. I, I paid my debt to society as it were. And so I'd had my, my rank was, was stripped down to E1, but I was still there. I just couldn't, couldn't hold, couldn't hold my job anymore. Cause I couldn't have a gun. Um, so then, yeah, I was administratively discharged and then moved back home at that point. So how was that transition out for you? Um, bitter. I was, I was extremely bitter, extremely angry. I blamed everybody but myself. Um, did you have an intention of doing 20 years or was, were you still looking prior no, I was to plan, I was planning on getting out. Like the, this whole, the party happened right when I was getting ready to go on terminal leave. And then I was extended past my, oh. they extended me to throw me in jail to kick me out. Is so what they could have just, they, they could have just, yeah, UCMJ been like, all right, dude, bye. Yeah. You know, and, and it was, but they wanted, the commander wanted examples made of everybody. So um, they went that way. And man, this is actually the, the most candid I've been about this on a public forum. So, well, thank you. But I think it's kind of cathartic to get some of it out. Good. To some degree. So moving home, uh, obviously not under the most ideal circumstances. Is that when you went and started working in the oil fields? No, when I first moved home, I didn't do anything for a while. I kind of just lived on what little savings I had. I, I moved in with my brother and my best friend. We were all sharing an apartment together. Um, I was in a band. You know, I was the rock and roll icon type guy or wannabe icon. Uh, um, ended up working at a bar for a while. Um, still just pursuing the rock and roll dream, which I pursued far too long. Um, but also pursued drugs and alcohol way more than I should have as well, which is kind of a common thread when people leave the military, regardless what grounds. Yeah. But, um, luckily my, uh, my brother who I was living with at the time, he threw me through a wall when he found my stash. And when I say he threw me through a wall, I don't mean he slammed me against a wall and said, don't do this shit anymore. It was, I went through two sheets of, of sheetrock and, uh, I was politely asked to not do that anymore. And then that I same think your week, version of polite, by the way, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, I was dating a girl at the time who is my wife now. She uh, she left me because of my drug use, and I've been clean ever since. That that week was the last time I used, um, basically just because I didn't like who I was, and and I used it as a crutch to blame a lot of other things on, and just to kind of escape. But and then after that, it slowly but surely started becoming a decent human being. And a decent, I mean, not that I was ever bad. It's just, I just didn't care about anything. Yeah. You know, there was I, no future. There was no give a damn. Yeah. No, I, I can understand that part. So I got to ask, and I don't want to harp on, on the past too, too much, but I think it'd be helpful for young veterans who are going through similar things that you did, whether it was very similar to what you did, or they got out before their time um because of higher tenure or just bad evals and weren't able to re-enlist how did you go through the va process after you got out or did you wait until later i waited a long time because i felt as though i didn't deserve it um i didn't earn it even though legally and on paper all of these entitlements and benefits were still mine i didn't feel like they were and it was 15 years after I got out before I actually registered with the VA for the first time and, and started, and actually I've got to go next week and, and start the ball and other things because it's just been, I've slowly been chipping away in going and, and seeing what I actually earned and got to keep. And, and what would you tell people who maybe went through a very similar situation and, and that um, still allowed them to get out, honorable general under honorable circumstances who are thinking they don't rate anything from the VA. Don't listen to what anybody else tells you. Don't listen to your past because who you were yesterday, as long as you're trying to change is not who you are tomorrow. And I know it sounds cliche, but it, it's 100% true. You know, if you raised your right hand and you did a stupid made a stupid decision that shouldn't affect you the rest of your life. And the only thing that's going to make it affect you the rest of your life is you. And it's, it's a hard pill to swallow and you have to sit there in the mirror and be like, Hey, I'm not that guy anymore. Um, you have to be the one to make that decision. Nobody else can make it for you. And the V did the VA give you any pushback on none, none whatsoever. Cause I think that's probably the biggest fear that people have because is- if- even on my, on my 214, it says reason for discharge. It says misconduct. Um, they don't even, it's never once been brought up by a VA representative in any capacity. Oh, okay, good. They, good. Just, they see general under honorable. They see um, the years served, you know, just all the regular information that's on there that they'll look at from anybody else, whatever deployments you have, whatever rewards and decks you have. And then they're like, okay, this is next process, next step in the process. Boom, boom, boom. And it's never, I've never been asked by anybody why I was discharged. Yeah. Cause I mean, in my personal uh, time in, I have heard stories left and right about, uh, yes, you can get VA benefits. No, you can't. If you've had an NJP with this, this, and this, you can't, if you've gone to court martial, it's gone forever. If you've do something you can't use your GI bill. So there's always all this misinformation out there. The the only benefit I lost was the um, GI bill, but I can still, I still use VA loan. I use the VA loan for the house I'm living in now. Um, 
I can still use VA benefits for um, property medical. taxes and uh, medical. Actually, I got to go and, and talk to them about my vasectomy, about my sleep study next week. Um, so I still have all of those benefits, um, VA representatives, VA preferences for jobs. Um, everything like that is still 100% available to me. And, and like I said, nobody's brought it up and, and I'm really active in some veterans groups locally. Um, I was very shy about getting into that initially because of just my own emotions about it. And I've been very forthcoming with everybody. Hey, I got a general under honorable, but dot, 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 and explain everything to them. And I've never had anybody tell me that I didn't deserve to be part of an organization that I was trying to help out because of my past, because I was honest with them. Um, I actually, uh, I tested for border patrol and, and made it through the entire um, interview process for them and told them I was very up, upfront about it. And it did not uh, disqualify me from the border patrol. What did hurt me with border patrol was my credit. I had too much debt and too much bad debt and being in border patrol, that is something that they take into effect because, or take into account because if you have a lot of debt and a lot of bad debt, that's a way that they say you might be able to get uh, bribed by the cartels and things like that. So they just try to squash that before it even starts. Yeah, that, so, that would make sense. So even, even with this, I was still eligible to be border patrol. Um, I'm still eligible to be law enforcement in the state of Texas. Um, you know, it's something that I, I, I had looked at. I just never pursued because in the old fields, I was making entirely too much money to go be a cop. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to bring that up, but then I remembered the oil field thing. So let's talk about the oil field real briefly. Um, and I want to talk about how you left that oil fields and transitioned into entrepreneurship. But what got you into the oil fields to begin with? Uh, baby number one on the way and needing something secure, needing more money than I was making at the time. And my brother-in-law was working at a company and he got me hired on um, just kind of as just the lowest of low entry level position you can get. And uh, yeah, and, and it went from there. And it's all contract work, right? No, um, I was W2 for the most time, most part. Oh, okay. Um, there's, there's a lot of contract stuff there. Um, if you're contract, you obviously make a lot more money on paper, but you have to get your own uh, 401k or IRA. You have to do your own health insurance. You have to take care of, the full sum of your taxes versus part of it being taken care of by your, by your employer. So there's, there's pluses and minus for both. Yeah, no, I, if I was going to go work out in the oil fields, I think I'd want to be a W2 employee. Yeah. A lot, a lot less headaches. Yeah. Um, and if you get hurt on the job, you're at least have that covered. So did the idea of taking your, your security skill set out to the oil fields ever intrigue you work in security out there? Or was it always, no, not just at all. wanted to get your hands dirty and yeah. Um, when I start, when I started off, I was I was what's called a, a mud logger. Um, basically, what what they're drilling comes out in tiny little pieces, and I look at it under a microscope, use several chemicals to uh, help identify whatever formations and um the lithology, what different kinds of rocks, minerals, everything they were drilling through to help identify where they're at, what's more likely to produce oil or gas versus not. Um, you can teach a monkey to do that job. It sounds very cool when I describe it, but it's actually yeah. not. Um, I, I'm thinking, do you have a chemistry degree or something? No, it starts off. It, it's, it's very geologically based, but it's stuff that you can learn on the job. 
Um, and from there, I saved up and got a, uh, went to two different engineering schools and became a drill, uh, drilling fluids engineer. And basically, that's a lot of chemistry, physics, trigonometry, calculus, and, and a lot of math, all kinds of math. Uh, so, did that for a while. And then uh, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, so it sounds like you were working your way up pretty well in, inside the uh, company. Yeah, well, it's, it's different companies. It, the oil fields is kind of weird. There, there's not really any companies that encompass the entire spectrum of jobs that, that happen on a single site. There's, there's yeah. With any site, there's probably 10 to 15 different companies represented because you have your actual drilling hands, you have your consultants, you have the, the exploration company, which is funding the whole thing. You have your MWD, your engineers, your directional drillers. There's, there's people all over the spectrum and it's a big team effort. So maybe when I was saying contract, I'm, it probably would have been more appropriate to say that the companies you work for contracted from Yes, contracted all, out. we were all contract because the, the, the exploration company like ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, um, you know, those those are the companies that are actually funding the entire operation when you're drilling. Oh, OK. So what what changed to make you decide to take this another risk? I mean, you seem to jump into big changes. Well, the oil fields is feast and famine. You're either making hundred thousand plus a year, or you're laid off, and there's no in between. And when you are making money, you're gone. There's, there's. I think the longest stretch I did was 114 days straight on rig, oh, with wow. no days yeah. off, and that was in a different state. And I had a wife and kids, and it was so I just wanted the escape to be able to get home and see my kids. And but it was you become addicted to the the money, you make a lot of financial decisions. Um that keep you kind of tied there, whether you want to or not, you know, you get the car payments, the motorcycle payments, the credit card debt, the big house, all this stuff. So you have to stay there to keep making money because you keep buying all this shit. And um, yeah. So, so when I was laid off and I had the opportunity to take my hobby and make it a full-time gig, of course I ran with it. Yeah. I have, I had no desire to go back out there ever again. I have a buddy who's been doing that since 2009 with uh, overseas contracting um, and hostile environments. And it's every year. This is my last one. And then wife needs a new car. Daughter's going to yeah. college. It's, it's and, a vicious cycle. And it's, yeah. Yeah. I've seen it too many times. So what is this hobby that you translated into a business? So I, I'd actually owned a laser engraving business in 2017 and 18. And I closed the doors because I had no clue what the hell I was doing with the business and um, had no desire to open a business again. And I was doing like the tumblers, like, like this guy right here, you oh, know, okay. doing those and doing barware and you know, cutting boards, things like that. Were you and, still out in the oil fields while you were doing that? No, um, I took some time off just to, just to try it. And oh, I okay. told my wife, I'm like, I don't want to wake up at 60 and say, what if, and we had a, a, we had a time frame set aside. Okay. If it fails, it doesn't, doesn't float within X amount of time. I'm going back. So I held my end of the bargain and shut the doors, went back, had no desire to be a, be a business owner again. Um, 
and I have a hat addiction. So I was buying three, four or five hats a month. My wife's getting pissed off me because I'm buying three or four or five hats a month. Why do you need so many damn hats? And uh, when I closed the business, I still had all the equipment. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to make my own. And I ordered some hats off of Amazon and ordered some leather and engraved some patches and, and slapped them on really, really rudimentally with just some really shitty glue and uh, threw them on Facebook. Hey, check this out. The next thing I know, I've got $1,000 worth of orders. And then I have enough orders to keep me busy for two weeks. And then enough orders. is And so... I was still working out in the field, taking orders when I was out in the field at the oil fields and filling them when I got home. And then when I got laid off, I'm like, screw it, let's, let's go. So uh, just went full bore. And here we are 16 months later, and I'm almost at the point of hiring my first employees. I'm making all the bills every month. Uh, I actually wrote myself my very first paycheck the last week of January. I'm actually able to write myself a paycheck now, which is kind of awesome. And uh, yeah, so that's where we're at now. So let's talk about the pandemic um, and all the craziness that happened with that. You are, for some insane reason, starting a business as we go into a pandemic. Well, the um, pandemic wasn't there when I started. <laughs> that's what's unfortunate. What was the time frame between when we went into lockdown and when you started? Um, I well, I was already doing it until, and then when I was laid off, I was like, I'm going to make it a, a full-time gig. And um, so I was already doing it full-time in December and what March is when, when everything kind of went to shit. Yeah. Went to shit. So March and then the whole second quarter of 2019, I was on unemployment. I had, I think I made like gross, you know, before material costs and everything I made like just over $3,000 the entire second quarter. So luckily unemployment covered me or kind of, we had, we had a saving safety net that we just completely blew through and, and I'm glad we had it, but building it back up kind of sucks. And then um, just as quickly as orders stopped um, during the beginning of the third quarter, orders started up again and I've just been going, 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 uh, Luckily, I've, I've surrounded myself with some really great business people, uh, mentors, coaches, um, groups that have really supported me and, and taught me so many things that, that has helped me grow and scale the way I have. Um, I have not made less um, than the month before at all since like last September. I've made more every month than the month prior. Nice. Uh, nice. You know, it's still, it's still tight and we're still keeping ourselves on a pretty stringent budget, but we're able to sustain. We're still able to take the kids out and go do some of the local attractions or movies and, and go out to eat every now and again, but it's still definitely tight so that we can keep growing and keep reinvesting some of this money. So uh, real quick, you are part of the Vetrepreneur group on Facebook. When yes. did you get, involved with that was it before or after you decided to go full-time it was when i went full-time the first time around i was i was actually one of the first like six or seven hundred members there in 2017 and then i was really active the first time around and then when i shut the doors like i stayed part of the group but i wasn't engaging in it at all and um it went under new leadership right around the time that i started venturing back into business again and uh yeah. And, and I honestly wouldn't be 
where I'm at now with a lot of the folks that are in the Betpreneur tribe. And more importantly than that is there's a subgroup called the Warrior Council there that has really, really given me tons of value as far as just knowledge and support, uh, people to reach out to, answer questions, people that have been there and done that. So it's a, would you consider it an important resource for anyone coming from the uh, military realm into entrepreneurship? Oh, absolutely. Anybody I know that that's going into business, if they're active duty, retired or veterans, I steer them to that site and let them know that, you know, just like anywhere you go with 15,000 plus members, you're going to have to wade through some bullshit to find the true value. Is but it really that do, many? It, it's 15,000 and change. Yeah. Wow. So now let's jump to last weekend. Cause I think what we did last weekend was pretty cool. Um, and it, this goes to show the power of entrepreneur and the power of having someone who makes really cool hats. Cause you are wearing the hat that you made for, for the, this, what would we call it? Mission number one. It's, it's the have um, humble alpha veteran empowerment um, mission zero zero one. And uh, give me, I'm going to be signing on my phone. I got to run and grab my kid from school. Um, so we're going to be going on the phone here. I'm joining with video right now. Okay. Admit. So. This should be interesting. Yep. Okay. I see you. Whoops. There we go. Ah. Okay. Now we got three. Boom. Okay. Sorry about that. And no worries. There we go. And I actually, I was going to go ahead and start to wrap us up. The what? All right. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. So, so to, to kind of wrap this around, this mission took a whole bunch of people who I haven't seen Joe in 15 years personally. I've had him on the podcast. I talked to him all the time, but I haven't seen him. But took, what was it, four or five different veterans from different areas. And we came out and helped this one veteran, Jose. Uh, build out his coffee roasting Connex boxes. And it was just a really good connection. So what's the plans for have? Did I lose you? All right. Once again, with Zoom, Zoom gets a little weird sometimes. So we're going to see if JD comes back. And Hello. you there? Okay, okay, there you go. There you go. I don't know what happened. It froze up for a second. Not a problem. So, what's the uh, what's the ultimate game plan with Have? Um, have is exactly what it says. It's just humble alpha, veteran empowerment. It's uh, you know, people that want to empower, elevate, support, and collaborate with other veteran entrepreneurs, and just everybody work on making each other better and whether that be like we did last weekend where we actually went and did manual labor and helped build a shop um or just meeting up with some people and helping them get to the next stage of their life that they're trying to achieve that's all that's the whole mission is just trying to make people be the best version of themselves that they can including ourselves Right on. And I, I got, a, I don't know about you, but I got a lot out of it last week. I got a lot more out of it than I honestly expected. I just thought it was going to be us just building this out and then drinking a few beers and, and moving on. And, and hell, you and I met there and look where we're at just a few days later. We're having a 
two hour candid conversation of things I generally don't talk with people that I've known for 20 years. Well, thanks for the trust. And I promise you we'll make this a good podcast. The um, last part I want to talk to you about is you have your own podcast. Yes. What inspired you to do it? Um, initially, it was just going to be an extension of my business to where I could um, let kind of humanize myself to my current customer base and um, future clients. And then it just turned into something completely different where it's more of just humanizing other business owners. I don't talk about my business. I don't let about, I don't let my guests talk about their business. And it's, uh, I, I, it's nothing what I thought it was going to be when I first started it. Sometimes those are the best ones. Yeah, it was, it's an amazing accident. Yes. Well, I'm going to let you go get your kid. Um, we will continue this again and hopefully we'll see each other soon. Yeah. And I'll have to have you on, uh, on my podcast as well and just have some fun there. Perfect. Cause you know, with, for me, I don't really know what my business is, so I really can't talk about it. Hey, awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we'll, de we'll definitely make that happen. Let me know, uh, when you have some free time. And of course, tell everyone where they can find you, your podcast, your laser engraving. So you can find me at uh, facebook.com slash Southpaw Laser Concepts. Um, the podcast is Southpaw's Tales from the Barstool, also found on Facebook. And then you can go to my website if you're interested in hats. Uh, all I do is custom work for businesses and individuals um, at getsouthpaw.com. Perfect. And last but not least, are you, um, oh my God, I just totally lost my train of thought. I hate it when I do that. Uh, what does it mean to be a modern Ronin to you? It's the channel, the YouTube channel is called the modern Ronin. That's actually my business name. The podcast is called after the battle campfire, which is basically reflecting back to the days when um, we go to war and you would camp out between battles and people would gather around their campfires and talk shit about the day's battles. Hey, I, did you see the way I took that guy's hand off or something like that? <laughs> but I, I really see us as modern Ronin people who are trying to give back. What's your take on that? Um, I think it's really aligned with where I'm already at anyways. And it's taking whatever life life lessons you have and helping the next guy down the line with what you've learned and trying to make them try to help them not make the same stupid mistakes you've made. Perfect. Well, thanks again, JD. And we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks for having me. I apologize for the weird ending. <laughs> not, not a problem. We'll talk later, man. Take care. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com on Instagram, the modern Ronin on Twitter at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.